0: You're listening to the Whole Vineyard podcast. To find out more about the Whole Vineyard Church, go to wholevineyard.co.uk.
1: Don't already know me? My name is Ben, not John, as Nate. So, kindly introduced me. To Us um, today, we're going to read Daniel three. If you'd like to read along with me, um, yeah. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, sixty cubits high and six cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the Sataps, prophets, governors, and all other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the Satraps, prefects, governors, advisers, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, All the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, "'May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all other kinds of music must fall down and worship the images of gold.'" and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, so these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the flute, horn, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all other kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what god will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual. "'and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army "'to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego "'and throw them into the burning furnace. "'So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, "'and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. "'The king's command was so urgent, and the furnace was so hot, "'that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers "'who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, "'and these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace.' Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisers, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, Your Majesty. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command, and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of my nation or language um, who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon.
0: Well, good morning, everyone. Great to see you all today. What a stunning passage. Uh, We could just do ministry now, couldn't we? It is is just amazing. And um, for those of you who are just uh, catching up with us now, we're in a brand new series uh, looking at what does it mean to embrace exile? What does it mean to thrive in our post-Christian context and culture? And when when we talk about this, don't um, mistake what we mean. The, The church is alive and well. Okay, just look at this morning... Uh, Journey and I had the privilege uh, last week of being, uh, going to minister to another church in Hull in the east side, and wow, they're just, uh, it was just an absolutely beautiful morning, and just meeting Christians from around our great city and the area. God is doing a, a new thing with unity in the, in the city, I think definitely as one of the redemptive things that have been uh, born out of uh, the pandemic, but there are thousands of followers of Jesus Who are gathered all across the city, and it is a a stunning thing. But we've got to navigate and negotiate this era that we're in, in that many of the values that we live by and subscribe to as followers of Jesus run countercultural to the world around us. And as we journey through Daniel in the morning and Peter in the evening, we're starting to learn some pivotal, crucial lessons of how do we navigate this era. And how do we thrive as followers of Jesus? Now, here we are in chapter three, and I just want to draw out a few simple lessons for us from this chapter. Um, It's really easy, isn't it, to hear this very familiar, famous story and almost feel detached from its relevancy. So uh, on the surface, here's here's kind of like a synopsis. The, The king, the King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, makes an image of what we can assume is um, a statue of uh, one of the gods of, of Babylon. And it's absolutely huge. And just to try and grasp how big this is, I was trying to compare it. It's actually about half the size in terms of height of Cinderella's castle at Disneyland. So there we go. And uh, just so you can grasp how big this statue is, um, anyone been to Disneyland. There we go. Look around the room, many people. Um, and people from all over are called to come and to bow down and to worship this statue. And if you do not worship and bow down to this statue, you are thrown into a very hot, fiery furnace. And uh, Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to, and so what he does, he just whacks up the heat in the oven. Now, I was at a party a couple of weeks ago, and uh, someone had a pizza oven, and um, it was extremely hot, And uh, but it's nothing compared to, to this fiery furnace. It's so hot that it actually kills the soldiers who are throwing Daniel's friends into, into this hot oven. And so they get thrown in, but here's the amazing thing, they're just walking around unharmed, and there's a fourth person in there. Most likely this is a pre-incarnate Jesus in there with them, and they come out and they are promoted. So that's the story, a synopsis of the story. Now, how is this at all relevant to me tomorrow morning? How is this relevant to us tomorrow morning? I want to give you four simple lessons from Daniel chapter three. The first lesson is this, that peer pressure is commonplace. Peer pressure is commonplace. Uh, I I want to draw your attention just for a moment to this statue, this idol that was built. And because if if we supplant that statue, as it were, into our context today, 21st century UK, uh, you see a couple of things. First of all, this thing was impressive. Impressive. It was huge, it was tall, it was visible, it was made of gold. It was most likely the god of this city and it had the the weight of the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, in terms of endorsement right behind the building of this statue. So I want you to think about this. In terms of image, this was imposing, this was big, this was attractive. Then there's a huge pull in terms of sound. Um, they all have this, and it's, in that context, it was sensual music to draw the people in. They had uh, horn, flute, pipes, various other things. Uh, and then there is the fact that the majority of people are coming to bow down to this statue. Basically, the capital's civil service are gathering to bow down. So you have conformity from the majority of people coming to bow down to this very impressive, imposing image of an idol with an, a kind of a powerful sound with it. Uh, and so, um, just to add to that, you've also got the consequences. If you do not bow down to this statue, then you will be punished. In other words, huge intimidation and huge control. Do this or else there will be consequences. So, here you have significant peer pressure to bow down to other gods through conformity and intimidation, through the power of image and sounds. Now, if you haven't picked up already, friends, this is our world. (laughs) This is our cultural moment. This is our context. Um... Through what we see visually and what we hear, we have significant pressure to bow down and to compromise. And this is so reinforced in our current climate by majority rule and people's intimidation. And so I think our first lesson from the start here is, is church, let's not be ignorant of the schemes and the tactics and the strategies of the enemy. The same kind of enticing power that was then to get people to bow down to counterfeit gods is the same power and strategy that is being used today. The enemy loves to use sounds and images for temptation and for deception. And so we may see this through music. Now, this may sound a little bit old school. I'm going to go old school this morning, okay? But we've got to be really careful about the kind of words we allow into our ears and also into our homes, and especially those who have children here, what they actually listen to. The power of music, redemptively, by God, is a powerful thing, but can be used the the power of certain sounds can be used for temptation and deception. All that social media, visually, Instagram, the power of that for people to compare the Insta life. I see someone else's life and I think, Do you know what, they've got it perfect. I'm really struggling. And we're comparing all the time. Think about the films. The films that we're watching, there's a, I've forgotten what it's called, but there's a huge um, pop, kind of rise in popularity with the, the recent Netflix uh, film and series. And I, I'm never going to be someone who stands up here and say, you should watch this and you shouldn't watch that, okay? We'll have a, we'll have a church split. As we talk about Harry Potter, who watched, should watch Harry Potter? We're not into that. You know, it's down to people's conscience. But I just want to raise awareness through God's word about image and sound. That alluring uh, sound and, and, and we're caught by things that are impressive and attractive and we think there's no problem behind it. But much of the work of the enemy is so, so subtle. It's deceptive. It, it appears as an angel of light. Come on, John, 21st century, get a grip. This stuff doesn't harm me. This stuff doesn't influence me. This is the real world now. And we've got to just be really careful. What about conversations? Again, just with certain people, certain words that you hear, negativity, gossip, various things, all sounds. Now you add in our country legalization to certain things and majority thinking, the power of that through social media mainly and we're at a crossroads as a church and the pressure The subtle pressure to compromise and to bow down to the world is so, so strong. There's constant temptation daily really to redraw the lines and compromise. Let me ask you a question. Have you found, say, in the last five years, do you found yourself compromising and redrawing the lines in certain areas of your life? In certain things, you know what, five, even ten years ago, you would not have done. You would not have compromised on. You had drawn a line and said no. And yet you found through the subtlety of majority opinion, through the power of image and the power of sounds, you have compromised. So that's something for our own hearts and our own conscience. So what is their response? Peer pressure, huge. What do they do? What is their response? Well, they stand firm in non participation. And uh, I I think this is really helpful for us today that they do not defend themselves, they do not negotiate. They, They didn't lead a rebellion, they didn't plan a boycott, they didn't condemn King Nebuchadnezzar for building this idol. And they did not argue. They simply responded by not bowing down. And I think about so many Christians who engage, and I think often unhelpfully, with the things that we're seeing today, and they may make a big deal out of it in certain ways. They may go on marches and plan boycotts and they condemn the kind of whoever's in charge of what's happening around them, or they get into arguments. But I love their response, and I believe this is the response of Christians in exile, is we're to stand firm in non-participation. And what's fascinating here is a large part of that is because they see really clearly they have a moment that bowing down, if you think about it, bowing down to a statue is ridiculous, (laughs) There's almost some humor, subtle humor, if you read it in this way. And it reminds me of that wonderful definition of idols in the book of Jeremiah chapter 10, where it says this, they adorn it with silver and gold, they fasten it with hammer and nails, so it will not totter. And it's like one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field. Their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them. They could do no harm, nor can they do any good. No one is like you, Lord. You are great, and your name is mighty in power. So, sort of contrast to the greatness of the true God compared to idols. Carry so much power and leverage and pull in people's lives. And yet, if you think about it, this is just a statue made of gold that can't speak, that can't walk, that has no power, that can't do anything, and yet everybody's bowing down to it. So the reality is, is through peer pressure, through the masses and intimidation and consequences, do this or else, is that's where the power comes. But they do not bow. I will not bow Is about non participation. And so for us this week, it's like, yeah, I'm sorry, but I won't lie. I won't lie to make the sale. I won't engage in a conversation. I won't try and reason with you. I won't do anything other than say, look, and if that means I'm fired, so be it. I'm drawing a line. I won't sleep with you. That means drawing a line. But there's two things you need to know about non-participation by way of warning. People are absolutely fine with you until you draw a line. People are fine until you draw a line. And so, um, and I think the reason, the real reason for that is, is that when you say no to something, actually what you're communicating is I disagree with your point. And we're living, again, in that age where to disagree with someone isn't like, well, that's your opinion, but actually that is something that's wrong, even maybe immoral in terms of your opinion. And also, it will cost us. It may cost you a sale, it may cost you a promotion, your job, a friendship. It will cost you, in the future, maybe for pastors, it will particularly, may cost us time in prison, who knows what the future will hold? We know that thousands and thousands of Christians around the globe are being persecuted in inhumane ways across our globe. They're being put to death for the faith. And for us, it might not be like that. Maybe it's more of a soft discrimination, an emotional, social pressure just to bow down. I was thinking about just even as I was growing up. You know, I had Christians in the church who'd like, you know, they'd go, you know, I was like 14, 15, 16 at the time, I just had like a principal that I didn't watch certain movies, didn't watch 15s, and so I'd have people in the church who'd go out for a cinema trip and say, John, are you coming? I'd say, no, and they wouldn't respect that. They would give me such a hard time. Like, oh, John, you're being judgmental accusing me of things like no I'm not judging you at all that's not my place to do but it's just my own conscience I don't want to do that I had kids I remember used to walk home from school they used to offer me five pounds and ten pound notes to swear just say the word just say the word John we'll give you money that's why I'm loaded now now we're joking (laughs) (laughs) we're joking so um, we cut that from the podcast I get some emails this week And whatever it is for you, and this is why, you know, we're never going to build a church culture here that we just, oh, let's just lob a grenade of sins and see where that lands. We're not interested in doing that. This is about heart transformation. That's between you and the Lord, and what God is speaking to you personally about right now. So they 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 do not engage. They simply refuse to bow down. And then this is the third thing they do. They actually respond with faith. I think this is the most amazing chapter to understand faith and that whole idea of faith has been abused in the church all across different denominations but if you want a good definition of faith it's in Daniel chapter 3 their faith is stunning these three do not negotiate and in their response this is so important they are 100% sure of God's ability to save them but not 100% sure of his purpose. (laughs) And, um, you know, for those of you who have maybe watched some certain TV programs, Christian TV, and listened to some um, denominations, you know, word of faith theology, um, I I think can be really tricky, to put it um, lightly. They have an over-realized eschatology. In other words, it's not that God can do it or he might do it and we're not sure of his purpose, but God will definitely do it and this is how he's going to do it. And almost the the emphasis is on the person having the faith rather than the God that we serve and love. It's the greatness of our faith over the greatness of God. And I think these guys have it absolutely right, is that their their focus wasn't on themselves, but it's all on God. They had a a win-win attitude. We die, we win. We get delivered, we win. But the most important thing, and this is what faith really is obedience. Obedience trumps deliverance every time. So people long to, to lean in to have deliverance, maybe in certain areas of their life, but I believe that the, the thing we should be leaning into for faith purposes is obedience. So faith does three things number one, knows the power of God, he is able. Knows the power of God. Secondly, guards the freedom of God. This is really important. It's about if he chooses to do what he wants to do. He's God, we're not. Thirdly, holds the truth of God. And that's what they did. We will not serve your gods. It's a breach of first commandment proportions. And so I was actually thinking, and I was a bit naughty doing this, thinking about what a, a westernized charismatic church might do in this situation. And I thought, they may say, Nebuchadnezzar, we're going to call down God's deliverance. We, we, we will bind the fire. <laughs> it's like, good luck with that fiery furnace. Um, or I thought, you know, let's pray for a hedge of protection. Now, if you've seen my and Joni's hedges in our back garden, they, they won't protect anyone. They won't protect us <laughs> from a burglar or anything. But of course, we use that uh, Old Testament language. But faith doesn't predict God's ways. It holds to God's word. That's what faith does. It doesn't try and predict God's ways. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. But it holds unswervingly to faithfulness in God's word. So it doesn't try and manipulate God or the situation. So in doing this, friends, the miracle of Daniel 3 has already happened. The, the miracle's already happened. You may be waiting for the miracle at the end of the story, but the miracle's already happened. The fact that they do not bow down and they do not worship in Nebuchadnezzar's totalitarian state is a miracle of God. It's a miracle of the confessing church. And so I think we need to redefine what success looks like as a Christian in exile. It's not about health and wealth. It's about courage It's about carrying the cross. It's about self-denial and non-compromise. That is what it means to be a successful follower of Jesus in an exile era. And their focus was not on deliverance, but was on obedience. They'd rather be obedient and not compromise, rather than be delivered. So powerful. Now, fourthly and finally, in doing all this, essentially their response was worship. All of this was about worship. The battle is for worship, worshiping the true God. Between the words "serve" and "worship," you'll see the words repeated sixteen times to hammer the point home. It's all about worship, but more—who we worship. You see in this text, don't you, that everybody's worshiping. Everybody's worshiping someone. The question is, is which God? And it's the same for every human being. We all worship, and worship is our response to what we value most. In terms of, and, and this will always show up, won't it? It shows up in our, in our energy. It shows up in our loyalty. It shows up in our finances, in our, our, our loves, our affection, our time. When we attach ourselves to anything, other than God, for ultimate meaning and purpose, that is idolatry. I love uh, these couple of scriptures. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 14 says this, therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. So let's go back to point two, do not negotiate with counterfeit gods. Do not negotiate with idolatry. Do not enter into negotiations with them. Draw a line, stay well clear, flee from idolatry. 1 John 5, one of my favorite verses in the Amplified, says this little children, believers, dear ones, guard yourselves from idols, false teachings, moral compromise, and anything that would take God's place in your heart. Anything that would take God's place in your heart, guard yourself from. Guard your heart above all else, as Proverbs teaches us. Now, this is really interesting because. Um, There are kind of three false counterfeit gods that are mentioned most in the Bible. The power of mammon, which is possessions, materialism, money. Um, Power, which is pride, and pleasure, lust. So like greed, pride, lust. Like the common false gods that are always tempting us through image and through sound Make us bow down. We see it in the Garden of Eden, don't we? Eve saw the fruit, saw the fruit, and was enticed. It was good for food, it says, enticed by that greed, and then pleasing to the eye. It just blows my mind. If if you want to know what temptation looks like, it looks like this God says you can have pretty much everything, but there's this one thing you can't have, and we always go for that. It's, It's the proclivity of the human heart, it's rebellion. And so it's, it's appealing, there's a pleasure there, there's a lust there, and then it is desirable for gaining wisdom. So I know what is best. God, I know you told me not to do this, but I actually think I know best. That's called pride. And as C.S. Lewis says, it's the cancer of all sins because it makes you blind to everything else. It's like the ultimate blind spot. Self-empowerment, knowing what is best. And Jesus dealt with the same three temptations in the wilderness, didn't he? Tell the stones to become bread. That was appealing to pleasure and his appetite. Then throw yourself off the highest point of the temple and the angels will come and rescue you. Show your power off. That is pride. And then promised him the world and its riches and its glory, which is mammon. And so we see this time and time again. And let me just say, if it's not obvious, is that the same three temptations will show up in our lives all the time. So we've got to guard against it, we've got to flee against it, we've got to not negotiate with it, we've got to run away and draw a line of non-compromise. So whoever gets our worship will determine who we bow the knee to. And and, and this is what's amazing. Whatever we worship and what is the object of our worship will ultimately form us into the person that we become. So if we worship Jesus, guess what? We become more and more like Jesus. If we worship Jesus, then we become generous, say, with our money. If we worship mammon, then we become greedy with our money. If you worship sex, you'll become a lustful person. In fact, if you look at most addictions... It comes down to a point of worship. Who or what do I worship? And so, the goal of becoming a Christian is not just to stamp our ticket to heaven when we die, or let's just make us into a nicer person, but we need a lot more nicer people, or let's improve our marriages or work justice in the world. But the goal of becoming a Christian is converting the object of our worship instead of worshipping money or our lusts or our bodies or our games of golf or our careers or sex becoming a Christian means you become a worshipper of Christ that no one no one else other than Jesus controls us no person no pursuit no obsession we are yielded to him we're not attached to anything other than Jesus Christ and our hearts are on fire for him and then as we just pray now. It's interesting that Christ did not keep them from the furnace, but he was there with them. And I was thinking about when uh, I had my operation in July, and it wasn't, it wasn't a serious operation, but you know, it was my first time under general anesthetic, and because of COVID and everything, you, you couldn't have any family. Uh, uh, and so, you know, it was, there was a moment in... In the, um, in the room where I, just, I was just like, Lord, I just feel like, you know, what if something wrong happens? You know, it's just general kind of anxiety or worry. And quick as a flash, the Lord said Psalm 131. So I just opened up my Bible and it says this, my heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I have calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child, I am content. Put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. And so whether it's hospital wards, whether it's funeral parlors or empty houses, friends, we can do anything. We can go through any fire because Christ is with us. And that's the ultimate deliverance. That is the ultimate hope that we have. That trumps everything, knowing that he is with us. Because I feel him, not necessarily because he's told me in his word that he is with us. And that is the most important thing. Thank you for listening to the Hall Vineyard podcast. We would love to connect with you and welcome you home to church. To find out more, go to hallvineyard.co.uk forward slash connect. And stay up to date with all that is going on in the life of our church. Go to hallvineyard.co.uk forward slash church news and sign up for our weekly mailing thanks for listening we hope to see you soon